0: Looking back to the end of Cassini on a special edition of Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. I'm in the United Kingdom as this week's show is published, hopefully walking through the sunny English countryside... It has been a very busy couple of weeks on the road, what with the Humans to Mars Summit last week and our Moon's Symphony Planetary Radio Live show in London a couple of days ago. That's why we will reprise our coverage of one of the greatest days in the history of planetary science and exploration. You'll hear my reporting from Caltech and the Jet Propulsion Lab on the morning of September 15, 2017. That's when the magnificent Cassini mission at Saturn came to an end. We'll follow it with a brand new What's Up segment and Bruce Betts. Bruce will deliver a new space trivia contest, but we won't announce a winner this week. We'll make up for this by naming two winners next time. I don't have headlines from our newsletter, the Downlink, but you can still find the latest edition at planetary.org slash downlink. What you're about to hear was originally aired in our September 20, 2017 episode. That was just five days after Cassini- plunged into the great ringed world that it had orbited for 13 years. It was a difficult choice. Should I be at JPL for the last moments of the Cassini spacecraft as it plunges into Saturn's atmosphere? Or should I go to nearby Caltech, where hundreds of Cassini team members, their families and friends were gathering? I decided to head for the Caltech campus, and I'm glad I did. By the time I arrived at 4 a.m., the party on the huge, grass-covered Beckman Mall had been underway for hours. There was less than an hour to go before the light-speed-delayed evidence of Cassini's loss would reach Earth. Small clusters of people stood in front of huge video monitors carrying the live feed from JPL. I watched two displays of the radio bands Cassini was using to communicate with the deep space network, all in real time, as it sped toward its doom. A spike in the middle of each display represented the signal coming from the spacecraft. When that spike disappeared, we would know that Cassini was no longer able to fight the buffeting of Saturn's atmosphere, as it strained to keep its big radio dish pointed at our pale blue dot. A few seconds more, and the mighty probe that had spent two decades in space would be torn apart and vaporized. Here's what I heard in the last moments as I stood with a small clutch of team members. Uh-oh. Huh. There's
1: still something there. Oh, now it's gone. So, I wonder if it... There we go. Oh, it's popped back. Yeah, it's probably tumbling, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that will be interesting to see a plot of afterwards.
2: Go ahead, Oh, well,
1: that's that. End of a 27-year adventure.
2: The
3: signal from the spacecraft just go on. And camp, within the next 45 seconds, so will be the spacecraft. I hope you're all as deeply proud of this amazing accomplishment. Congratulations to you all. This has been an incredible mission, an incredible spacecraft, and you're all an incredible team. I'm going to call this the end of mission. Project Manager, off the net.
0: Few people seemed interested in leaving the mall when the spacecraft went silent. For many of them, this event marked the end of years, even decades, of research, engineering support, and all the other tasks it had taken to make Cassini such a success. Time was short if I was to reach JPL a few minutes before a 6.30 a.m. media briefing, but I could not resist saying hello to one more person standing under the still dark skies at Caltech. You never know who you meet at Caltech at five o'clock in the morning. Ellen Stofan, you're part of the team.
4: Yeah, I've been with the Cassini Radar since about 2001 or 2002, which for me seems like a significant portion of my life, but I've been on it for so much less than so many of the team.
0: I I wasn't sure I was making the right decision whether to go to JPL, where my colleague Emily is, or to come here. I'm really glad I came here.
4: You know, all the instrument teams are here, and, you know, we're all like family because we've been together for so long, meetings, ups, downs, working on papers together. And, and so it's really special to me. It's like it's like a huge family reunion here.
0: A team member, but you also, maybe not anymore, but you can bring sort of the NASA headquarters view of this as well. It's, it's a triumph.
4: Yeah, you know, as the now former chief scientist, when you look across what NASA accomplishes from Earth science, studying the sun, studying the universe... You know, obviously for me, the study of the solar system is amazing and Cassini has been really the crown jewel um, for NASA. Uh, For one thing, just looking this morning as they've gone through all the old images of Saturn that we've taken over the last, you know, 14 years, it's aesthetically beautiful. I mean, to me, there's something magical about the Saturn system that it really is the most beautiful place in the solar system.
0: And we need to go back.
4: We do need to go back. So about five years ago, I proposed to send a boat to one of the seas um, at the North Pole of one of Saturn's just came
0: up with Ralph Laurence.
4: Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it did. Um, you know, we really would like to go back. Titan is an amazing world. You know, it's got these seas of liquid hydrocarbons. Uh, it's a fascinating place, sort of a push on what are the limits to life in the solar system. And then, of course, there's Enceladus. You know, spitting out its oceans, waiting for us to come sample them and figure out if there could be life.
0: All we have to do is go.
4: All we have to do is go back. We know what to measure. We know where to go. We know how to do it. Um, we just need to go.
0: You told me just before we, uh, when I asked you to do this, you, you you would just stop crying.
4: Oh, yeah, but now I'm going to start again. <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's a huge part of your life.
0: Thank you, Ellen. Thanks. When we return, you'll hear highlights from the JPL media briefing that followed the end of the Cassini mission, including a few words from project scientist Linda Spilker. And we'll visit with astronaut and retired NASA Associate Administrator John Grunsfeld. This is Planetary Radio.
4: Hi, this is Kate from the Planetary Society. How does space spark your creativity? We want to hear from you. Whether you make cosmic art, take photos through a telescope, write haikus about the planets, or invent space games for your family, really any creative activity that's space-related. We invite you to share it with us. You can add your work to our collection by emailing it to us at connect at That's connect at Thanks!
2: There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science.
0: Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan with more coverage of the end of the Cassini mission on Friday, September 15th. I arrived at JPL and found a choice parking spot. With my press pass hanging around my neck, I entered Von Karman Auditorium, where, as a reporter for my college radio station, I had witnessed the landing of Viking 1 on Mars. That was 41 years ago. The old auditorium has probably hosted more planetary science mission press conferences than any other structure on Earth. This morning, the room was once again packed with TV cameras, reporters tapping on laptops, bright lights— and more than a few people in purple Cassini shirts. We'll have a link to the entire briefing on this week's show page, but here are portions of the opening statements from Cassini program manager Earl Mays and our old friend, the Cassini project scientist, Linda Spilker. By the way, these two leaders of the mission were among our guests for the live celebration of Cassini we held at Caltech on Monday night, September 18th. You'll hear portions of that event on next week's show. Here is Earl Mays.
3: There are times in this world when things just line up, when everything is just about perfect. A child's laugh, a desert sunset, and this morning. It just couldn't have been better. And if you think about that moment where we've been waiting for for this entire seven years, everything clicked out just right. And then we can step back and say the same thing about the Cassini mission. A superb machine in an amazing place doing everything we could possibly do to reveal the mysteries and secrets of our solar system. This morning, a lone explorer, a machine made by humankind, finished its mission 900 million miles away. The nearest observer wouldn't even know until 84 minutes later that Cassini was gone. To the very end, the spacecraft did everything we asked. That ground system support was superb, and we believe we got every last second of data. It's already back in Arizona, and I think the analysts are already working on it. So we have indeed accomplished exactly what we set out to do, complete this mission with a Saturn probe. We also need to thank our many millions of fans. The the, the heartwarming buzz that we've gotten from social media, from the educational uh, region throughout the world, Uh, the media, the more traditional media as well, has just been great. Telling the Cassini story, inspiring the next set of explorers, is just absolutely as important to us as the scientific results we've found. So thank you very much for that. The Cassini mission ended this morning, high over the clouds of Saturn. The spacecraft is gone. Thanks and farewell, faithful explorer. But the legacy of Cassini has, has just begun. The effect that Cassini has and will have on the future of planetary exploration will go on for decades. Thank you, and long live Cassini.
2: Well, for me, this has been an incredible journey with Cassini that spanned 30 years. I was with the mission from when it was just an idea after the Voyager flybys, and now to see it through to the end is truly amazing. And to share that with my family, my personal family and my Cassini family, what a wonderful experience. When I look back over the Cassini mission, I I see a mission that was running a 13-year marathon of scientific discovery. And this last orbit was just the last lap and so we stood in celebration of successfully completing the race and i know i stood there with a mixture of applause and tears because it felt so much like losing a friend some a spacecraft i'd gotten to know so well and yet in looking ahead you know both an end and a beginning there's so much left so much incredible science left to figure out and understand decades worth science that will span uh, a generation When I think about Cassini going in, I know that there's a piece of me there in heart and soul because I know we signed uh, our signatures on a list of sheets. Those sheets were scanned in and put on a CD, and that CD is on board Cassini. So a little piece of me went into Saturn's atmosphere along with Cassini. So what an incredible ride. Uh, and just lasting for so long. I want to step back just a little bit. If we could go to the first uh, slide, please. This is an image uh, put together by our visual and infrared mapping spectrometer team. They did a spectacular job turning around this data set that just came down last night. And this is a view in in the infrared at five microns. You can see the heat energy coming out of Saturn. And this is the place where Cassini took its final plunge. And if we go to the next graphic, see a little air ellipse there? That's where we think Cassini went into the atmosphere of Saturn. So, you know, what an incredible ride. And to get that, that was the very last set of Vim's images that came back from Cassini. And so so here it is turned around very quickly uh, for you to see. And as we went into the atmosphere, we had eight of our science instruments on including the ion and neutral mass spectrometer, we had the magnetometer, we were collecting gravity data there to answer questions about Saturn itself. But in particular, trying to understand as we probed deeper into the atmosphere, the hydrogen to helium ratio. You can't measure helium unless you're directly measuring. You can infer it, you can model it, but to be there and directly measure and sample, uh, that was absolutely amazing. And so that team is hard at work right now Uh, looking at their data and trying to assess what they saw in those very final moments. And I'm sure they'll be very happy that Julie was able to get the spacecraft to survive those extra seconds as we uh, plunged on in. And then, of course, the longer-term analysis, as I said, that will go on for years. And I just want to thank everyone as well, in particular, the international science team. A lot of them are down at Caltech. We had too many to try and fit all at JPL. And so they're down, and they've been... Uh, celebrating, and I've heard having a great time from the reports I've I've heard. Uh, And also to thank uh, the public, as Earl said, who have uh, come along with us. And when I think about Cassini, I think Cassini's final gift to humanity was the fact that we knew the day, the hour, the minute, and now the second of the plunge. And so we could gather together with the scientists, the engineers, with the public, with our own families, You can think of us as a giant, worldwide Cassini family and share this final moment of the plunge and have that memory to add to our Cassini scrapbooks. And if I had one thing I could say to Cassini, I'd say, goodbye, Cassini. Thanks for the ringside seat at (laughs) Saturn. And as Thomas said, we'll be back. Thank you.
0: Earl Mays and Linda Spilker of the Cassini Mission. Standing quietly toward the rear of the auditorium was John Grunsfeld. We last talked with him when he was still NASA's associate administrator heading its science mission directorate. Like Ellen Stofan, John had also served as the agency's chief scientist, and John rode the space shuttle into low Earth orbit on five missions. You were in charge of the science mission directorate at NASA during a good piece of this mission that we just witnessed the, the end of. I can certainly understand why you're here, but how does it feel?
5: Actually, it's it's really gratifying. The Cassini mission was, we can say that now, so incredible from start to finish. And it's a great example of what I think NASA science does best, which is to come up with something extraordinarily challenging, aspirational, where we are going somewhere that we don't know the answers. We, are in going into an environment where we don't know what we'll encounter Uh, and Cassini of course had strong science rationale strong science requirements Uh, but you know here we are now looking back at you know really decades of incredible science and incredible discoveries and so when I start getting a little bit sad that the Cassini spacecraft is no longer that it's now part of Saturn I only have to think about the incredible plumes on Enceladus or the lakes on Titan or the incredible images that we've gotten of Saturn. And I start getting goosebumps as I am right now that this has been an extraordinary ride and will continue because of the science. For so many of us, Saturn has a special place in our hearts because as wonderful as the rest of the solar system is, as wonderful as our universe is, our Hubble's universe, when you're a kid and you're looking in a backyard telescope, Saturn is really the object that jumps out at you as "Wow, we live in an incredible universe." For so many of us, it has inspired us to go on to do science, to do astronomy, to do astrophysics, to become astronauts. And also, Saturn is unique in that of the gas giants, Jupiter and Saturn. Uh, Jupiter's radiation environment is so hazardous; I don't think people will ever go there. "Ever" is a strong word, but but Saturn is a place we could actually go someday and explore as human beings. Uh, and so Cassini has given us our first taste of that. Of course, all of the science, all of the energy, engineering on Cassini is a human effort. And who knows? Humans may someday go and sail over the rings and you know, wonder at their incredible beauty. A little
0: choked up about that. As somebody
5: up. who's been out there, yep. you'd like to see humans out there not far. Well, you know, once we develop rocket engines, fusion drives, where we can physically go out and explore the solar system as we do low Earth orbit, uh, I think Saturn will be a desirable place to go. We have to go back to the why. uh, And and the why is really the wonder. Are we alone in the universe? To me, that's the grand question. Uh, And in order to answer that question, we will probably need to go and visit Europa. That's why we started the Europa Clipper. We will need to go and visit Enceladus. We will need to build telescopes that can look at planets around other stars. And all of these missions are, you know, by any definition, large strategic missions, flagships, and will be expensive. But if that's what it takes to answer that question and many more, uh, it's worth it. And let's not forget that going to the outer planets is certainly the best way to get the most detailed information. But we will, uh, in a little over a year, launch the James Webb Space Telescope. And it is so capable to observe Saturn, Saturn's moons, uh, Neptune, Uranus, even diminutive Pluto, and of course Jupiter's moons, that it's almost like having a mission going to those planets. And and I think we are going to be startled at how useful that is for learning more about these uh, enigmatic worlds.
0: This mission obviously its legacy was is shared by thousands of people. You are certainly part of that group. Is there any place else you would have wanted to be today?
5: No, as as you know, your listeners know, I'm I'm retired from NASA now, uh, and so I came here on a personal trip. I really wanted to be here to be part of this uh, because uh, you know we love Cassini. You know, long live Cassini.
0: Thank you, John. Glad you made it. Thank you. John Grunsfeld, astronaut and former NASA associate administrator. We congratulate the 5,000 men and women of the Cassini mission for a job well done. Ellen Stofan, former NASA chief scientist, former director of the National Air and Space Museum, is now undersecretary for science and research at the Smithsonian Institution with oversight of its science research centers along with the National Museum of Natural History and the National Zoo. Jim Green would also become NASA's chief scientist, a job he has only just retired from. His hope for a mission to our solar system's ice giants has been furthered by the recent recommendation of the National Academy's Planetary Science Decadal Survey of a Uranus orbiter. Linda Spilker remains the Cassini Project Scientist. She has also returned to the Voyager mission as Deputy Project Scientist. She and other Cassini leaders joined me on stage at Caltech one week after the mission ended. We've got a link to that September 27, 2017 episode on this week's show page at planetary.org radio. You'll hear her again soon as part of my Planetary Radio Live panel in London. Here's that brand new visit with Bruce. Time on this special edition of Planetary Radio for a special edition of What's Up with the Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society. There's Bruce Betts. Welcome back. Thank you, man. I'm feeling special. I am too. I'm feeling really special because as people hear this, I'm in London, probably walking through the country, and hopefully, we'll have just enjoyed this uh, uh, Planetary Radio Live event that we uh, did on Monday. May 23rd, about uh, the Moon Symphony. So, uh, yeah, I'm a happy guy.
1: All right. Have a scone for me. I will.
0: Yes, with clotted cream, which sounds so awful, but really is delicious.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Should we talk about the sky, the one you'll see because you're staying in the Northern Hemisphere? I'm ready. Actually, this first stuff uh, it should be visible Northern or Southern Hemisphere, and that is the planets in the pre-dawn sky. Venus and the Moon... Crescent moon, very close together, low on the eastern horizon. Venus looking super bright. Near the moon on the 26th and 27th, so shortly after this comes out. Interestingly, in our line of planets, we've got bright Jupiter and dimmer, but still bright reddish Mars moving very close together on the 29th. On the 29th, in the pre-dawn, look in the east. And the there's a super bright Venus down below and then bright Jupiter and reddish Mars will be closer than a moon diameter to each other in the sky. And then Saturn hanging out safely far to the upper right, just avoiding the tussle in the evening sky. I feel like I've abused it because all the planets are in the morning sky. If you look up high overhead and this one is a Northern hemisphere thing, sorry, uh, you will see Arcturus, which uh, you can also find by going to the big dipper and following the arc of the big dipper and arc, tourists you'll come to a very bright star, Arcturus. Now, if you're up at, at 3 in the morning, then look up there and you'll see the bright star Vega. This is our This Week in Space History. 2008, the Phoenix lander successfully landed in the polar regions of Mars, hunting ice and carrying, uh, by the way, the Planetary Society's Vision of Mars mini DVD, the first library on Mars with uh, science fiction, science fact, uh, greetings from Carl Sagan and others to uh, future explorers of the red planet as well as a whole bunch of names of people who wanted to go to Mars.
0: And that naughty spacecraft dropped uh, Mars Mars dirt all over our our nice pristine DVD but that's all right
1: <laughs> it did And I gotta say it made me really happy. It's like oh it's so cool There's Mars dirt on our DVD. Let us move on to random space fact, a random space fact. <laughs> nice.
0: In honor of my uh, trip to the UK. Thank you. You're welcome.
1: So this is a story of uh, a, a spacecraft originally called AsiaSat-3, something I would normally not talk about. A telecommunication satellite destined, ideally, for geosynchronous or geostationary orbit around the earth to do communication. Well, it turns out Russian launch vehicle screw up. And so it ended up in a bad orbit. Long story short, it was bought by Hughes and they sent it on several elliptical orbits. They had enough fuel to send it, get this 6,000 kilometers away from the moon. It went by the moon and used a gravity assist there and then a follow-on to get back into, although not the orbit exactly they wanted. They made a geosynchronous orbit that would salvage the the mission. Strangely enough, this sort of makes it the first commercial lunar spacecraft.
0: Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I suppose so. So, we don't have a winner this week, which means we can go straight on to a new contest, because we do have one of those.
1: good news is we don't have any losers this week either.
0: That's true. That's true. We always have a lot more
1: losers than winners. Name all the U.S. planetary spacecraft. Wouldn't it be fun if I just stopped there? <laughs> but <you laughs> instead, <better> now. <laughs> name yeah. all the U.S. planetary spacecraft, by which I'm defining beyond Earth orbit, including the moon. All U.S. planetary spacecraft launched in the 1980s. Huh. Name them all. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Launched in the 1980s. You have
0: until Wednesday, June 1st at uh, 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer for this one. And the prize we're going to have for you, if you're chosen by random.org and get this right, is in my hand. It's Mary Roach. Remember her, Bruce? She wrote that great, really funny book. Yeah, Packing for Mars, one of the funniest, maybe the funniest guest I've ever had on the show, other than you, of course. Wow, oh, good save. She has now written Packing for Mars for kids. It's this beautiful hardcover book from Norton Young Readers. It's uh, nicely illustrated, and it has Mary's... Uh, uh, what should be her patented uh, humor, her approach to things. It's really a terrific read. Whether you're a kid or not, I enjoyed it very much. And um, that's it. That's the prize. I think we're done.
1: All right, everybody, go out there, look up at the night sky, and think about Matt in the Tower of London as a, as a visitor, maybe. Thank you, and good night.
0: Checking out the jewels. Well, not this trip. Did that last time, you know, had one of those those nice uh, talkative bee feeders uh, show us around the place queen's got a nice place i i got to admit she's got a she has several nice places went to windsor too
1: on <laughs> um, personal invitation
0: uh yeah yeah of course but not the queens he's bruce betts the chief scientist of the planetary <laughs> society who joins us every week here for what's up Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members. Become part of our adventure at planetary.org join. Mark Hilverda and Ray Paletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. at Astra.